0: Well, good morning to you all. If you'd like to pick up your Bibles, we're back into Galatians, and we're in chapter 6. We're actually going to start our reading in Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. So if you can get that open in front of you, if you've got a a church Bible, that would be really helpful. Uh, And I'm going to read that before we pray. So let's read this together. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Okay, let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning. Help us as we look into your word, as we try to understand what it is that you are saying to us Lord, help us to understand. Help us by your Spirit that we might comprehend these words and take them to heart and therefore become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We ask this in his name. Amen. Now, people say that pride was the first sin ever committed. You heard that before? And, and people say that not because of the first sin human sin, particularly, when our, you know, when our parents ate that forbidden fruit in the garden, but because of the belief that Satan himself was a fallen angel who rose up in pride against God and wanted to rule in his place. That's generally the story that we get told. And we don't know for sure if that's true. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But we do know that pride certainly was an ingredient in that first sin the first human sin and actually it's an ingredient in every sin that we commit pride think that through now what made eve decide to take the fruit you've thought about that We're given an insight into her thinking at that very moment. It's very interesting, isn't it? Moses writes and actually tells us what her thinking was in Genesis chapter 3. So we have a scene there where the serpent has tempted her. And he's tempted her with the prospect of becoming like God. That's quite a temptation, isn't it? You could be like God. God knows, he hissed that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. That's the temptation that comes her way. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says this, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired, to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You know, when you weigh that all up, Everything about that first sin focuses on self. It does, doesn't it? It delighted the eyes. Whose eyes? Her eyes. Delighted her. And the prospect of self-improvement, self-elevation, self-exaltation, reaching up and being like God. Well, that's a real temptation, wasn't it? What could she do for herself? That's... The whole temptation isn't it pride is a poison in the human heart it's deadly and the bible makes no bones about this which is why i'm going to focus on it this morning okay pride is a really important issue so look, look at some of these verses psalm 101 verse 5 whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart him i will not endure that's quite damning isn't it about pride or proverbs chapter 3 the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, and he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Or later on in Proverbs, Proverbs 16, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Or James 4, verse 6, which we had a little while ago, didn't we? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's consistent through the Bible, isn't it? Pride's a big problem. Pride, that, that desire to lift oneself up, that's got no place in the heart of a child of God, which is what Galatians calls us, isn't it? Remember? Children of God. You're a child of God. Everyone here is a child of God if you put your trust in Jesus. And that is what our text is actually all about this morning. So we're going to start with chapter 5, verse 26, and look at humility's source, because we need to sort out this pride issue. Now, before we get into that, let me just recap. See, we've spent the last 10 weeks looking in a bit more depth, because it's part of the Galatians series, but a bit more depth at the fruit of the Spirit, that nine-part description, which is actually a description of what Jesus himself is like, isn't it? His qualities. His qualities. As God goes to work then in the heart of a Christian, as the Holy Spirit goes to battle against our sinful desires, we ought to start seeing this fruit in each other's hearts. And maybe you've been seeing little shoots growing up over these couple of months. That's my prayer for us all. Love. A love that gives rather than takes. That special kind of God's love love that gives rather than taking, just sacrificial like Jesus. Joy, that buoyancy that keeps our head above water, anticipating that glorious future, even in the darkest days. Peace, peace, a calmness in our souls, knowing God is in control and that we are safe if we are in Christ. Patience, a long fuse, you remember? A long fuse, we don't blow up even in the worst of troubles. Kindness, the serving of others at personal cost, like God's kindness to us. Goodness, being all that we ought to be in each and every situation that we come across. Faithfulness, loyalty, complete, self, you know, complete uh, reliability within ourselves. Gentleness. Bringing that strength that God's given us, the gifts that God's given us, under control. Strength under control. And then last week, self-control. The ability, remember, to to choose the important over the urge of the urgent. And those combine, don't they, these wonderful fruit that we've got described there, they combine to give a, a wonderful portrait of what we should be. And what God is actually doing in us, what he's trying to make us into. And hopefully there's progress being made in that as we walk with Christ. But becoming that way is, of course, and maybe I hope I don't need to keep reminding this, but I'm sure I do. It's not achieved, that growth is not achieved by grit and determination on our part. If that's what you've taken from this series, if you thought, Andy's banged on now about these nine fruit, I've got to get to work on seeing if I can grow these. If that's what you've taken, I've, I've messed up. It's achieved by the work of God in us. I hope you see that. It's what he produces in us. Our role is nicely summed up by Paul in chapter 5. Don't miss it, and I'll remind you, because it's been 10 weeks. It's summed up by those expressions we focused on a couple of months ago. Galatians chapter 5, just look down a page because most of you now got a Bible open there. So I say, live by the Spirit and you're not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Verse 20, so since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You get the flavour of what's going on there. How does this fruit grow? It grows when we walk by the Spirit, when we live by the Spirit, when we're led by the Spirit, when we keep in step with the Spirit. It's not just about you, is it? It's the work of the Spirit. It's God the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And so we're to face each day, and I hope you're doing this, prayerfully coming to God as the source of all you need. In fact, the source of your new life that you have, seeking his help to become in practice what you ought to be. And in, that is a way of life in which there is no place for pride. No place for pride there. In fact, when you think about it, the gospel, the Christian good news, is actually... The antidote to pride. So if you think of... you know, It's like, it's like uh, anti-pride, like anti-matter sort of thing. Matter and anti-matter, they collide and there's just this flash and they explode. Right? Except in this case, the gospel comes along and pride, and it just demolishes pride. It blows it out of the water. You can't have the gospel and pride in the same place. If you're a genuine follower of Christ, then you know this already, I'm sure. At some point in your life... You realised that nothing you could do from your own strength could secure God's approval for you. You must have realised that if you're a follower of Christ. You know, and actually a big part of the letter to the Galatians is all about this, that God is not impressed by any ritual you do, by any ceremony that you might have gone through, by any sacrifice that you might make by any discipline that you might train yourself to achieve, or any good deed that you might do outside of Him, You know that the only way that God accepts anybody is in Jesus Christ, his beloved son. It's the only way he accepts anyone. That is, God receives us because we are trusting him. We're trusting Jesus. It's as simple as that. When we put our trust in Jesus and not in ourselves, so goodbye pride, right? Remember, pride's all looking at myself. God is gracious and he welcomes us with open arms once we're putting our trust in him. And that whole thing then is anti-pride. Can you see it? We have nothing to boast about. Uh, uh, There's no aspect of how we became children of God that makes us want to sing our own praises, only the praises of God. And, added to that, I think we're making this point, aren't we? We've got nothing to boast about, about how we continue to live as God's people day by day. We can't boast about that either, because remember, all of it comes from Him. We've been given that new life by the Spirit of God. Any progress in our our life is going to come by walking with Him, keeping in step with the Spirit. Got it? So, what room is left for pride? (laughs) For giving yourself a pat on the back. None, actually, none. The gospel explodes the pride in our life. And and we know this is true, don't we? I mean, what happens when we don't rely on him in life, when we do try and rely on our own strength? All we know, we fall into sin, we despair of ourselves ever-changing, and we sit there all frustrated and saying, why can't I just change? Because you can't. You do need the work of God within you. Without him, there's no change happening. And so Paul moves into this next bit of application in verse 26 by saying this. And it's really fitting then, isn't it, to follow with this. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting verse right there. And clearly it's a warning about pride, isn't it? Now, we don't like conceited people, do we? They're all haughty and proud. The word conceited, actually, you know, when you look in dictionaries, it says something like vainglorious, which is, of course, way more helpful. But actually, it describes the empty concept of glorying in ourselves, doesn't it? That's the whole idea, vainglory, to glory in myself. It's an empty thing, to glory in me, (laughs) and it's interesting because the verse goes on to describe and I want you to tune in on this two ways in which we might do that glorify ourselves we exhibit pride by either looking down on people or by looking up to people this is really interesting the first one there is really obvious you can imagine the person that looks down on you can't you uh, you know they provoke and look at verse 26, that's what they're doing. This is, this is the first one. They provoke others. How? By their arrogance. <laughs> By their conceit. They, they provoke. They make condescending comments. You know what that's... Have you had that done to you before? They make you feel small. They belittle people. And they do it, usually, and they may not even do it consciously for this, but they're doing it to make themselves feel bigger. Yeah? To seem big in other people's eyes. That one's fairly obvious. We understand that as a sort of pride, a conceit, isn't it? But the other type of pride looks up, and they are described in verse 26 as those who envy, the enviers, yeah? You see how Paul's put conceit and described it in two ways. Either you're provoking or you're envying. The person who feels, and some of you need to hear this, okay? The person who feels inferior all the time. And... This is them, and and they're all the time wishing they were like others whom they admire. Strange, isn't it? That may not seem like conceit, like a form of pride to you, but it is. How so? Because at heart, both types of people are wrapped up in themselves. That's what's going on there. In both cases... It's all about how other people make you feel or look, rather than about how you make them feel or look. Perhaps this helps. C.S. Lewis summed it up really well. He He could just do a pithy phrase, couldn't he? He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I mean, there you go, I've just spent 10 minutes and he said it in like 10 seconds, hasn't he? See, now, what we're dealing with here is the toxic vapour that we need to sort of blow out of the church. We've got to get rid of this kind of pride. The whole thrust of this part of the letter, these last bits of the letter here, it makes, makes this very point. It's about serving others and not serving ourselves. It's about turning outwards and not turning inwards. And that is what makes us distinctive as a church. And that's actually what Paul's been fighting for all along, if you remember. It's the way we're supposed to use the freedom that he's been banging on about and defending so hard. The brilliant summary in chapter 5, verse 13. Have a look. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. That's actually looking inwards, isn't it? Think about it. Indulging my desires... Rather, he says, serve one another in love, outwards. The entire law, says Paul, is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. It's all outward, isn't it? It's all anti-pride again. The essence of pride, you see, is that you think that the world must revolve around you somehow. But in the Gospel, we find that actually the whole universe revolves around Christ. It's completely different, isn't it? And that means we serve. And this is the interesting thing, not only then does the gospel deal a death blow to the pride of looking down on others, but also of looking up in envy. The gospel also addresses this low self-esteem that looks up in envy, because just as no one is good enough to win God's favour, likewise no one is so bad So rubbish, so wicked, that they are beyond his grace. Do you see how it lifts? The gospel brings, first of all, it brings down the haughty, doesn't it, the gospel? This is what we've seen in those verses. But it also raises up the lowly. There's no place for either. Do you see that? There's nothing virtuous in thinking of yourself as like, I'm just rubbish. Nothing virtuous in that. It raises up. You're not rubbish. You're a member of God's family. There's no place then for looking down on others in God's family and there's also no place for looking up in envy. And that's something that we need to grasp clearly before we can go on into chapter 6. So I hope you've got that one now logged in your heads. Because one way or another, here's the cash value of this, pride is going to stop you from really being able to serve one another. That's what it'll do. Now, before we sing, let me just give you a little roadmap map of where we're going and, and, and give you another reason to concentrate this morning, okay? Here are the puzzles in our text. Just take a look at what we've got this morning in chapter 6. Verses 5 and 2, they seem to contradict each other. What is it, Paul? Carry each other's burdens or carry my own load? Which one do you want me to do? I'm getting confused. Got it? Can you see that? Bit of a, bit of a head scratcher there, isn't it? And the verse we just had, chapter 5, 26, and verses six, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, tell us, A, don't become conceited, but, verse 4, you may take pride in yourself. Okay, which is it, Paul? Which one do you want us to do? And in a letter that proclaims freedom from the law on every page, we're now encouraged in, in, in verse 2 there to fulfil the law of Christ. So we're going back to some kind of law again. So, stay with me, and after our children's song, we'll try to figure out what's going on in these next verses. I hope that's piqued your curiosity. Our children's song celebrates the gospel of our mighty, mighty Saviour. So let's stand, and let's look at these words together now. Great stuff. With more of you doing the actions, we're slowly turning into an aerobics class. It's fantastic. Okay, so, chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters... If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. So the whole thing about understanding our pride is essential in what follows here in these verses. So true, Christian humility... Is, is, a, is a vital ingredient, isn't it? True Christian humility. And it's a vital ingredient in two ways that we must love and serve one another. The first that uh, we've brought our attention to here is in the case of a brother or a sister who's caught in sin. So I'm calling this one the ministry of restoration. We need humility to do the ministry of reconciliation. First of all, let me say, this, this verse here is not an encouragement to just jump on any sin that we see in others and try to set them straight, okay? Someone accidentally lets a bad word slip or something like that, or has a grumpy morning, uh, you know, don't look at me, Tiago. Uh, uh, that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about just jumping on anybody for every little thing that they do. Yeah, That would just result in a church, wouldn't it? Uh, of you know, It's like a church full of driving inspectors. You know those chaps that just sit next to you with a clipboard? Yeah, you're terrified to sit next to. Every minor error that you make gets logged down. If you get too many of them, you know, you're in trouble. That would be absolutely horrible. I wouldn't want to come to a church like that, would you? Quoting from the book of Proverbs, Peter actually reminds us, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's not that we're just sin-spotting when we come to church. That's not what this verse is about. In fact, the 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 wisdom book itself, Proverbs, adds, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It's his glory to overlook an offence. That's the kind of heart that we should have, shouldn't it? We're not to be, then, nitpickers, but we are to love each other well enough to know when a brother or a sister has been, look at the words, has been caught in sin. I think that's the issue here, isn't it? I take it that's more likely to be something that's become serious or something that's habitual, something certainly that they are struggling with. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives guidelines for dealing with that kind of sin. Maybe you're familiar with them. The first step, he says, is to take a brother or a sister aside... And he says, keep the matter just between the two of you. And I I think largely that's what this verse that we're looking at in Galatians is talking about. If that doesn't work, then, Jesus says, you're to bring in a third party, and if there's still no joy, then you bring it before the church. But you're praying it doesn't get to that, aren't you? Because the aim, the goal of doing this is not to make yourself look good, to boost yourself up. Look at how I help people. No, as verse one says, the aim here is to restore the person, to restore him. Now, the, the word "restore" here means to mend. It be the same word would be used to describe putting a dislocated bone back in place. You ever had a dislocated joint or anything like that? I believe it is excruciatingly painful. Uh, And probably I would be such a worse. I wouldn't want anyone touching it to try and push it back in. It's a process that can be painful, but the result is that the person is whole once again. They're mended, they're functional once again. And that's what this process here is all about. That's all very important. It's an important ministry to have in the church, isn't it? To restore people, to have whole people, functional people, mended people. And yet, it's a ministry that is often neglected in the church. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a church where that's the case. Or it's done really badly. Or it just seems to, it either seems to never be done, or it's done in such a way that, you know, it just leaves devastation. And why does it go wrong, this process? It goes wrong because of pride. It goes wrong because of pride. You see, humility is absolutely essential if we're going to serve each other in this way. First, for those who look down on people, they may be only too willing to get involved in a ministry like this, I suspect, because they like to put their oar in. But their involvement is only going to provoke, not to restore. You know, to be assisted by someone who constantly has an air of superiority as they're talking to you you know you just get that sense of you know i would i would never i can't believe you've got yourself into this situation i would never get myself into this kind of situation look how good i am you know how could you be so foolish you really are a silly person aren't you you know that is likely to destroy rather than to restore that is like taking the person with the dislocated shoulder and giving them a kick in the wrong direction isn't it I mean, it's just going to do absolute devastation. It even hurts to think about that. But those who feel inferior, so the uplookers, are likely to not get involved in the first place. That's their problem, don't you think? After all, they're thinking to themselves, well, what have I possibly got to offer in this situation? This is not my ministry. I'm not qualified. I probably need help more than they do. I'm ever so humble." And that's no good either, is it? Because that is also just as inward looking. It's just looking at myself all the time. The gospel compels us to look neither up nor down, but out to the needs of others. And by the way, it's a ministry that should be done by all of us. See, some people read verse 1, and this is probably those that are doing the up-looking, and they breathe a sigh of relief because they read that it says that this is a ministry for those who are spiritual. And they think, if whew, that is such a mercy because this means it's just a ministry for the elders and the deacons to do here, you know, the, the special people. But I hope I've already rubbed in that if you are living by, walking with, keeping in step with the Spirit, which is what we are all commanded to do, then spiritual includes you. All Christians are spiritual. And if we're, growing, if we're actually growing the fruit of the Spirit, this is a ministry for us. I think that's what Paul is saying here, isn't it? Those of you who are spiritual, it includes you. In other words, it's an, it's an application of what we've been looking at in the last 10 weeks. Hence, you might notice the repetition of the word gentle is in there. We're to do it gently, you know, expressing a particular fruit of the Spirit as we do this. Because this is for spiritual people. So how then should we go about it? Well, and and some of you need to hear this, we're to go about it with confidence. But with the confidence that comes from knowing that God's going to provide what you need to do this. If you're a willing pair of hands, a willing heart, a willing ear, to come and get alongside somebody, he's going to provide what you need. You can do all things through him. And with the humility of someone who takes care, as Paul says, because there's a real possibility that they too could be tempted. This is the attitude, you're to go alongside somebody to help them in a sin that they're caught in. To be of any use to others, you've got to first realise that you yourself are capable of equal, if not identical, sin to the one that they've fallen into. That is really humbling, isn't it? That is really humbling. So it's a, do you see how this, this amazing mixture of confidence and humility together that is the, the hallmark of, of the Christian? Confidence, I can help, God's with me. But I've got to be really careful here. The humility of knowing, I am flesh and bone. <laughs> Aside from God, I am nothing. I'm vulnerable to sin myself. Therefore, the sympathy, the gentleness comes through. That will make us gentle helpers, won't it, coming with that attitude? And remember, gentleness is not weakness. Please do remember that. It's robust, it's strong at times, isn't it, gentleness? And it's always under control. It's always doing good. I mean, I guess, you know, going back to that putting the shoulder back in joint illustration, it takes takes a bit of strength, I understand, to do that. I don't know if any of the doctors here have ever done it. You know, I have images of people getting the foot in the armpit and giving it a good yank like that, isn't it? But it's gentle. It's gentle because it knows what it's doing. It's under control. It does the maximum good. And then added to the ministry of restoration in verse 2 is the ministry of burden-bearing. I need to speed up because I'm I'm getting waylaid here. So verse 2, have a look. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. Now here's something else that pride puts a stop to isn't it if you're concerned only about yourself then you probably won't even notice other people's burdens you'd just be oblivious uh, let alone offer any meaningful help when you do because you're also caught up with yourself one time Jesus' disciples James and John came to him with a request they wanted the best seats in Jesus' kingdom. Do you remember we did it in Mark, Mark chapter 10? It was, it was a hunger for personal glory, really, that brought them to Jesus, wasn't it? A hunger for that. And so Jesus corrects their thinking. He says, you know, we're not to be like the world that's after those sorts of things. That's not how my kingdom works. But then Jesus goes on to make a statement that ought to make us stagger more than it does. Mark chapter 10, verse 34, verse 45, "For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." That, that's a sentence that should floor us. Jesus actually deserves glory. Be perfectly right for Jesus to glory in himself. It wouldn't be empty at all, would it? He is glorious. He should have been served hand and foot as the king of all creation. And yet he, the only one actually worthy of worship, is the one here who came to serve. And this is our example. This here is our example. We are to empty ourselves of all that glory-seeking pride and imitate our king, the actual glorious one. And one way we do that is to bear each other's burdens It's a ministry of bearing burdens. This is the way, according to the second half of the verse, that we fulfill the law of Christ. And what does that mean? The kids have got that on their worksheet. I mean, hasn't Paul made this huge fuss about how we are no longer under law? Well, the law of Christ is different. The law of Christ is the law of love. We saw it earlier in chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, didn't we? Do you remember? How we're to use our freedom to serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command: love your neighbour as yourself. That's the law that God's concerned about. To fulfill the law of Christ means to model our entire life on the example of Christ. That's what it means, doesn't it? It's, and here's the essential difference: listen, it's a life centered on a person rather than on a code of how we're to behave. That's the law of Christ. It's a life centred on a person rather than a code. To love our neighbours as ourselves. This instruction comes straight after verse 1. But whilst restoring those caught in sin certainly qualifies as bearing a burden, I don't think it's to be limited to that. The burdens that others bear can range through all sorts of things, can't they? Think about the burdens that people around you are bearing. Maybe it's raising a child. Arranging a house move, perhaps. Struggling with the loneliness of lockdown. Having nobody to talk to. Burdens. If we're to be a church that serves each other in love, then we've got to start looking away from ourselves. uh, And this will become the essence of our humility and become aware of the burdens of those around us are bearing, so that we can shoulder that burden for them and help lift it. Let me just finish this segment by a quote from John Piper. He makes this comment. I thought it was kind of wonderful. He says, look, some of you might wonder what you're supposed to do with your life. Here is a vocation that will bring you more satisfaction than if you became a millionaire ten times over. Develop the extraordinary skill of detecting the burdens of others and devote yourself daily to making them lighter. That's a way to to live a life. I wish I had more time. We're going to look at the remaining verses in just a moment, but first of all, I'm going to hand over to Tiago for his bit. Okay, well, please get your Bibles open in front of you again. Uh, Let's have a look at these last verses in our closing time that we have together. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. So here are some really actually quite puzzling verses, I think you'll agree with me. Verse 4 raises the issue about taking pride in ourselves, that's quite a sticky one. And verse 5 tells us to carry our own loads after having been told to bear each other's burdens. But verse 3 is reasonably straightforward if you look at it. I mean, the logic is actually quite straightforward, isn't it? If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. I mean, that's a fairly obvious statement, isn't it? What it's saying here is that we need to have a right assessment of ourselves. And I take it that requires us To listen to what God says about us and not about what to to what the world tells us about ourselves. Do you see the difference? Not what our deceitful hearts tell us, but what God says in His Word. That's where we're to assess, that's how we're to assess ourselves. And so the focus here in these verses seems to be about having a right view of ourselves. We're encouraged to test our own actions. That is, to examine our lives carefully and realistically because we don't want to kid ourselves about what we're really like. If our assessment about ourselves is correct, then we might have reason to take some form of pride, have some kind of boast in ourselves, says Paul. Now, that's very strange. That's a strange-sounding thing to our ears. So let's take a little look uh, at what's going on there. The pride, the word there, pride, or boasting, that is spoken of in verse 4, is actually very different, I think, from the conceit that we saw in chapter 5, verse 26. How so? Because it took the form, in verse 26 there, of either looking down on people or looking up in envy at one another. But here, take a look at the end of verse 4. It is without reference to anyone else. You see, it's actually quite a different thing going on here. This, then, is a sober self-assessment. And actually, the scripture is, scriptures are very positive about us doing that about doing a bit of self-examination. We're encouraged to do that. This, then, is not a case of looking at Jim and thinking, I'm at least as good as he is. Or looking at Sue and saying, I just need to be as good as her. The whole comparison thing's gone out. It's not the looking up or looking down. This is an assessment conducted before an audience of one. In the classroom or you know, in the exam room is just you and God. And that's how the assessment is going on. Now, after much head-scratching this week, I found that the technical commentaries tell us that, and I I quote, the construction of verse 4 is future. Okay. Uh, What that means is that we should read it actually as, so take a look down, He will have boasting. And then actually verse 5 is each one will carry his own load. And that gives us a huge clue as to where these verses are actually going, and it's really important. I think the fog starts to lift once we make those adjustments there. It seems then that what Paul's probably got in mind here in these verses is talking about a day of future judgment. This will be a day when God passes judgment on our lives, on everyone's lives. And if we are to be ready for that day, we will definitely want to know where we stand beforehand. And hence, the urgency that we do not deceive ourselves about ourselves. Got it? Now, this really makes sense here. Because it's very hard to justify the idea of boasting in ourselves in this life. If that made your, you know, if that verse made your Christian spidey sense start to tingle, then there's good reason for it. Well done. Because. Boasting is not something encouraged, is it, in the Scriptures? Uh, you know, and especially when only a few verses later in verse 14, have a look, Paul categorically states for us, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. So here then it seems Paul is bringing us back to this issue of the poison of pride within us. Pride is what will deceive us. Pride tells us that we are something when we are actually nothing. That's what pride does. Now, obviously, we are something. You know, I'm here. Yeah, physically, I am something. I exist and you exist. However, Paul is not speaking about us physically. He's speaking about us morally. And the Bible makes this really plain. Here's a few verses. Romans 7, verse 18 where Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You're a big fat zero. Apart from Christ, morally we amount to nothing. We're incapable of anything properly good because Romans chapter 14, verse 23, it's important we understand these verses. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Those are sobering words, aren't they? It is God, then, who takes people who are morally bankrupt and redeems them. It is he who takes the nothing And makes it something. Not only will pride put a stop to us serving and loving one another, it will also blind us to the extent of our need before God. And therein lies its biggest danger. Verse 5 then is talking about a very different load from the burdens that we're to help each other to bear. This, this load is a load that only you or I can bear for ourselves, this load that we're talking about. John Stott puts it this way, there is one burden that we cannot share, and that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack, and I cannot carry yours. The load in verse 5 is the load we will be personally responsible for before God on the final day of judgment. How did you live your life? What did you do with the opportunities and with the gifts that I gave you? The warning here then is to make sure that you don't cloud your self-judgment with pride, but that you rightly assess the works that you do. Are we doing these things to make ourselves look or feel better? To puff ourselves up? Is that why we serve? Are we doing these things out of a dutiful observance of a written code that's told us we must? Now think about that. That is a damning condemnation of the false teachers attacking the Galatians with their gospel editions And you get right. You make yourself right with God by working. Or are we doing these things? Will we serve one another because the love of Christ compels us? Because he's put his love into our heart that makes us reach out to others simply because we love him. And because we love him, we love them. And thereby we fulfill the law of Christ. So assess yourself. It's what these verses are telling you, isn't it? And then, Paul suggests, then on the basis of that assessment, you will have perhaps reason to boast on, not boast now, but boast on that future day. And only then in the cross of Christ. So where does that leave us? Two things as we close. I want those here who've never really grasped the gospel to be left in no doubt that it has no room in it for pride. There's no room in the gospel for pride. If you profess to belong to Christ, don't be deceived. It must be because you are trusting him and him alone for every single part of your salvation. Please don't leave here in any doubt of that truth. And secondly, I want those who have grasped that truth, I want us to keep in step with the Spirit, to let that profound truth of the gospel evaporate all of the residual pride out of us. And at the same time to give us courage and confidence that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us so that we can serve one another so that we are willing to get involved and to restore those who are caught in sin, to spot the burdens that others are bearing and to pick those up, fueled by the love of Christ within us. Let's pray. Father, please help us to so understand your gospel, to so let its truths grip our hearts, that all pride and vain glory is banished from us. Help us to follow the example of your Son. Give us the courage to confront the sin in each other's lives so that we might gently restore one another. And help us to be sensitive to the burdens that others bear so that we're quick to share that load. And above all, may we only boast in the cross of Christ our Saviour in whose name we ask all these things. Amen.